You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, we brought you an interesting story last week about breakthrough research on rearing cryopreserved tropical sea urchins at the University of Hawaii's Coconut Island. It was an example of good basic science. Today, we spend time at Sand Island on an applied science urchin project. We talked with David Cohen, who's Ohana, years ago, affectionately dubbed him the mayor of Urchin City. I first met him more than a decade ago, just before the very first outplanting of little urchins on a patch of reef in Kaneohe Bay. And this morning, his team of researchers from the state's Division of Aquatic Resources were out in the water deploying a new army of seaweed-loving soldiers. The fight is against invasive species that smother our coral reefs. We paid a visit to the urchin hatchery at Sand Island last week. From humble beginnings, now in the home stretch to hit that milestone million mark. We'll take you inside the Department of Land and Natural Resources laboratory where it all began. Here's Cohen talking about their success using urchins as biocontrol. It's a complicated process. In order to raise urchins, first you need to raise their food. So we're standing in this lab. You've got flasks everywhere, bubbling, kind of mad scientist <laughs> set up here. So what are we looking at? So we're in our phytoplankton culture room. So phytoplankton are single-celled algae that we isolate from the ocean. And we're growing two different species in here, and we're growing them to feed to urchin larvae. What you're seeing here is a 40-liter cylinder, one species of algae called a diatom. And then over here in this room, this is our what we call our mass culture side. These are 100-liter cylinders, and we're growing a, a, a phytoplankton uh, that's a cryptophyte. It's called Rhodomonas. They're 100-liter cylinders. They're about a foot in diameter, and yes, they're about four and a half, five feet tall. All this great effort that you're going to is for conservation. Yes. So the idea here is that we're, we're growing sea urchins in order to eat invasive seaweed that's been growing on coral reefs, primarily coral reefs in Kaneohe Bay. And when you and I talked, it was maybe 10, 12 years ago, you had a very modest setup. We were just getting started. What happened was um, I came on board in late 2009. We did our first hatchery run in August of 2010. And the day that I met you was in January of 2011. And that was the night before we did our very first release of urchins into Kaneohe Bay. We're doing out plantings um, right now every other week. We're about to go into a, a phase where we're gonna be planting urchins every week. And we're putting out between four and 6,000 with each out planting. Uh, last year, we outplanted over 250,000, and this year we're on track to do about 120 or 140,000 urchins. I mean, that's just astounding when you think. I mean, did you ever imagine you'd get to this point? I, I did imagine it. I imagined it many times. I just didn't think it would take this long. We, we just sort of took things one bottleneck at a time, one step at a time. And I was very enthusiastic, and I, was, I had great hopes we just met each bottleneck and sometimes they took a little bit longer than we thought they would. Yesterday was we had we had outplanted the 900,000th sea urchin and we're on track to plant outplant uh, number 1 million in early November. We're we're very excited about that. It's it's really fun. And what does that mean for the reef? So right now what we're seeing out in Kaneohe Bay is most of the reefs in Kaneohe Bay are looking pretty good there is seaweed coming back and our field team goes out a couple of times a year and they survey the reefs and they spot treat the areas where the invasive seaweed is returning. So the next place that hatchery manager David Cohen took us into was the larval room. We peer deep into large black water tanks where the larvae are fed and technician Matt Lewis checks on their progress a couple of times a day. Look in here. I don't know if you can see all those little dots. Yes. Those are 18-day-old sea urchin larvae, and they look like they've been eating really well. How can you tell? Because the water is fairly clear compared to how it looked a few hours ago. They're hungry. They are, they are hungry urchins. And our technician, Matt, has just walked in. Matt, are you about to do the afternoon uh, water samples? Yeah. Okay, so Matt's going to do the afternoon water samples see how well they're eating. So you, you check these twice a day? Once in the morning to see how well they ate overnight. 
and then once in the afternoon to see how much they need to be fed again overnight to get them through until the next day when Matt comes in to take care of them. So he needs to take the samples, measure the samples, and then make a decision as to how much he's gonna feed before it's time for him to go home at the end of the day. So these procedures, these are just things that you developed uh, over the last decade or so. I mean, yeah. it's been trial and error. Yeah, so th this particular process, this particular routine was established pretty early on. This is kind of a standard routine. I had, I had done aquaculture work before. I'd worked in a shellfish hatchery and I'd worked in a shrimp hatchery. And again, when you're taking care of animals, they need to be fed periodically. So whether it's once a day, twice a day, or three times a day, or continually, you need to monitor to the amount of food that the animals are eating so you can then feed them up accordingly. So this is the larval room. And in order to get larvae, we collect urchins from the wild. We'll get them to spawn. Usually when we bring them in, we'll put them into a tank, give them about 15 minutes of sort of a rest period. Once they've rested, usually the males will begin to spawn. After about 15 or 20 minutes, we start to collect sperm. That will go on for a half an hour or so. And then around that time, the females will begin to spawn. We'll collect eggs from all the females. We'll bring them in here. We'll fertilize eggs. We'll take a look at them. Uh, the following day, we'll come in and we'll have free swimming larvae in a beaker. Then the, the fellas and then the women that work here will siphon off the best larvae and count them and stock our larval rearing tanks. On the third day, they begin to eat, which is what we're seeing right now with Matt. Um, what we'll do is Matt will come in in the morning or a technician will come in in the morning and they'll take a water sample. They'll see how much the urchins ate the night before. They'll count the, the amount of algae on the slide. Then they'll, do a they'll take a larval sample and do a population size and health assessment. Then they'll do either a water exchange or a tank change and clean the water. They'll feed the animals a known quantity. A few hours later, they'll come in, they'll look at a water sample again to see how much the animals have eaten. And then if they need to be fed, they'll feed them again and tuck them in overnight. Yeah, just like taking care of babies. There you go. It's exactly the same. Some pretty intense stuff. We then went through the main warehouse where rows and rows of tanks are organized to deal with each stage of growth of the urchins. The building that we're standing in was built in the 1970s for prawn aquaculture. It's a greenhouse because freshwater prawns like it really, really hot. So it's a wonderful building because it's big and it's covered and there's got all this great aquaculture equipment in it, but it's really old and it's really hot. And um, so we're always fighting the temperature in here, trying to make sure things are cooler. We like to have the light coming through because we like to grow different kinds of algae. We grow single-celled algae and phytoplankton. We grow benthic diatoms, which are single-celled algae that grow on the surfaces of things that make up our, our biofilms. And we grow seaweed or macroalgae as well. So we like having the light, but we don't like having the heat so much. This uh, facility deals with what stage of the urchin? So this part of the facility deals with the sta stage of the urchin when they're getting ready to when they're getting ready to settle and when they've first settled. So in other words, we have an urchin, a pelagic urchin larvae, a larvae that's free swimming, or a larvae that's in the water column. It gets ready to settle, and we move it into this tank over here. It settles here. And once it's settled, we, we then take that urchin and move it to another part of the greenhouse for grow out. And once those urchins get to a stage, they grow spikes. The staffers collect a couple of thousand of them to disperse out into the bay. It's very labor intensive, but the numbers speak for themselves. We thank DLNR hatchery manager Dave Cohen for a glimpse into his world of sea urchins. I dare say he has earned that title of mayor of Urchin City. By the way, he was also named employee of the year by the University of Hawaii Research Corporation in 2020. Kudos to Cohen and his team as they move toward that one million mark, Imua.
is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we explore rail history in the islands. Controversies surrounding Hart's rail system continue to baffle Oahu residents as the completion date keeps getting extended. But did you know that Hawaii has a long history when it comes to locomotive transport? The first rail line in Hawaii was built in uh, 1881 to halt sugarcane. The rest of the kingdom soon followed suit. By 1899, industrial rail lines had been constructed on Kauai, Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. Most were useful for the sugarcane industry, but some also moved freight and passengers. The heyday of commercial rail boasted over 200 miles of track across our islands and lasted for more than 50 years before lines were abandoned and replaced by trucks. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, we're reaching all the way back to rail's humble beginnings in Hawaii because we want to know what was the first railway to operate in our state. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 to answer the quiz. If you're the first one with the correct answer, you'll score yourself an HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mampila Rampili, author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reimagining a future that is just and prosperous for. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Montessori Community School in Makiki, celebrating 50 years of providing an education for life for children from 2 to 12 years old. MontessoriHawaii.org. check today looks at the rising sea levels in Waikiki and how it could affect two long-time clubs. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. You know, you're going to laugh because just last night I was at the bar at the uh, Elks Club having a conversation about, gee, what, what was going to happen with the leases with the uh, Outrigger oh, really? Club? And voila, ah. you have the answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as we reported and maybe as you asked, the lease, uh, so the Elks Club down at the eastern end of Waikiki, owns the land there near the base of Diamond Head across the street from Kapiolani Park. And the outrigger, which is located next door, leases the property from the Elks. So the lease comes due in 2055, and the outrigger members want to know what's going to happen beyond that. So they have been talking to the Elks for years about extending the lease and giving the outrigger and its members some assurance that they'll be there for the long haul. So that's kind of the backdrop. And some interesting things happened uh, somewhat recently as the Outrigger members were ready to put together a proposal and send it to the Elks and say, hey, this is what we've come up with. What do you think? Would you accept this? The Outrigger 
presented this to some local real estate experts who were members of the club, really prominent real estate people here in town. And they said, whoa, time out. You guys haven't considered climate change and sea level rise and whether this place might be underwater (laughs) in the coming uh, decades, in which case this lease you're suggesting would not be very valuable. So that's where we are now. This discussion uh, went on for a while among the members. The negotiating team really pressed and said, we have no plan B, let's just present this and we'll figure everything out later. And earlier this month, the members voted and said, no, we don't want to present this to the Elks. And that's where we are now. So this very prestigious club, prominent in Hawaiian sports and Hawaiian sports history, its future is now uncertain. And again, it the bigger story here is it shows how um, climate change is really affecting businesses and affecting the way things are, people are operating and decisions they're making. And it's only going to increase uh, over time, especially down in Waikiki, where, where it's so important to uh, residents and tourists, and <laughs> everything's right there uh, built up against the shore. You know, uh, I was just down there in Waikiki recently with Dolan Eversall. Uh, and he was in charge of that uh, beach replenishment uh, a program for Sea Grant. I uh, was talking with him and another hydrologist, and they were talking about, yeah, we've got to make some hard decisions uh, down the road because, you know, sea level rise. And, and, you know, they mentioned that some of the, the buildings there are already seeing some issues, I think, with their basements. Yes, that's right. And and this was something um, not in the story, but I did speak to someone uh, who has a lot of knowledge about that, uh, about some of the buildings there who said, yeah, in the basements, it's, it's actually pretty scary when they're king tides and high tides. Um, it doesn't seem um, uh, really uh, safe or perfect, at least if maybe we don't want to say unsafe, but yeah, it, it's there's a lot of issues um, going on that are going to have to be sorted out. And we spoke to Dolan as well. Uh, he is working on a uh, part of a big community-wide um, discussion about how to solve a lot of these problems. There, the legislature uh, provided $400,000 to help fund these discussions about what to do down there. But you're exactly right. Basements. How do you deal with that? Cars and parking lots that are underground. How are they going to deal with that? There's so many questions that need to be dealt with in Waikiki. And this little um, lease uh, glitch between the outrigger and the um, Elks, while really important to the members, is really just a sign of what's going to be coming in a really big way over the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I mean, the, the words of manage retreat, it's kind of scary, um, but, you know, it, it is out there on the horizon, and we're going to have to face it at some point. You know, how do we deal with this? Yeah, I think, and, and again, it's retreat, it's getting up higher, it's letting water come certain places. I think these it's going to be a combination of things that really need to happen, according to the people I spoke to. Well, you can spend a lot of time at the bar <laughs> contemplating the future of that area. But thanks so much, Stuart. Okay, thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Many of the issues and topics we cover on our show strike a chord with our audience. Listeners often share their thoughts, comments, and questions with us on our talkback line. And from time to time, we share them with you. Following our Honolulu Civil Beat reality check about the exploding feral pig population in Aina Haina last week, we heard from this Makiki resident. I'm listening to your program about the wild pigs eating the cat food. And yes, the feral chickens in Makiki have just exploded in population because they, too, like the cat food that the cat ladies put out. And more than a year ago, when I asked one of the cat ladies 
stop feeding the cats, the chickens, and the pigeons, she compared herself to St. Francis of Assisi. So there's no what to do about that. And she doesn't even live in our neighborhood. Meanwhile, we all suffer from the 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. rooster crows. Mahalo. Mm, my heart goes out to you. And here's an email that we received from Connie in Kamuela after learning of the recent corruption scandal on the Big Island. Aloha. Admittedly, I have not closely followed all of the political forms and debates, but I find it really difficult to understand why the folks running for office, governor, lieutenant governor especially, have not been asked to comment or state their position on this most recent affordable housing corruption scandal. It's my opinion that anyone and everyone holding an elected office would have known or should have known what was going on. The perfect opportunity would be when a candidate states their position on affordable housing goes on about how important it is and how they're going to support it. Where were they when this guy and the attorneys were committing fraud and right under everybody's nose? In my opinion, everyone knew and no one did anything. It's not logical to think that this level of corruption having gone on for so many years was a surprise to anyone except for people like me that work, have a family, and simply do not have time to read every article and stay up on every issue. Thank you for your time in reading my email. And thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792 You know, the fall semester started for Hawaii's public schools last week, which means our private schools and colleges here and elsewhere will be starting back soon. One college student from Hawaii, Camille Lehulu Slagle, was recently chosen to be part of American Public Media's new project. It's called Standing in Two Worlds, Native American College Diaries. In it, four indigenous students share how they're using higher education to strengthen ties to their native roots and support their people. Slagle was a lone Native Hawaiian chosen to participate. She took time from her summer semester abroad to talk to the Conversations' Russell Sabiono about her college experience. Aloha mai kako o Camille Lehulu Slagle ko uinoa piha no Hawaii maiau aiau makapapa umi ma Stanford University. Hi, my name is Camille Lehulu Slagle. I am Native Hawaiian from Kailua on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. I am currently finishing up my sophomore year at Stanford University, studying chemistry as my major, and I'm minoring in geological sciences or geology. I'm also part Japanese. My mother is Hawaiian-Japanese mix, and my father is German-Irish, so white. So I'm kind of a little melting pot, just like the rest of Hawaii. How did you get selected for this national program? APM reached out to the program called College Horizons, which is actually um, featured in my specific story. So they reached out to College Horizons because that is a program that deals specifically with college access to Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and Native American students. So then from there, College Horizons reached out to me. They're like, hey, we think you would be a really good fit for this podcast that they're doing. Would you be interested? And I like immediately signed up because I thought it was just such a cool and like unique idea and opportunity that I think a lot of kids don't really get to see or hear themselves on and doing. So I was grateful that I was able to be a part of this. And the title of this program is Standing in Two Worlds. What are the two worlds that you're standing in? For me, growing up at Kamehameha, which is obviously an all-Native Hawaiian school, it was very interesting for me, and I think the title hits home specifically just because I went to Kamehameha from kindergarten to senior year. So for my entire life, I grew up in my own culture and knowing Native Hawaiian culture and language and everything. And then now I'm a student at Stanford University going into my junior year, and now I'm put off of my island, out of my comfort zone, into this situation and this environment that was very foreign to me from beforehand. So I think it has definitely been a balance for me, or standing in two worlds per se, just still trying to stay connected to my family, to my culture, to everyone back home in Hawaii, in a place Pacific Islanders make up less than 1% of the student population. I want to ask you something, and, and the reason I want to ask you is because I'm Native Hawaiian as well, and I have kids who are very fair-skinned. 
and it appears that you pulled a lot of your dad's physical features. Is that Would that be yes. accurate? Yes. And so I'm wondering if this standing in two worlds also has to do with people's perception of you physically as well. Do you find that also a component or maybe an obstacle that sometimes you have to overcome? I would say definitely that is like a component as well, especially for me because I'm very active on social media and on TikTok specifically. I definitely get a lot of those comments, you know, like, well, she's not Hawaiian. She doesn't look like this. Like Hawaiians are supposed to look like this. So there is still this very clear like perception for a lot of people that Hawaiians are supposed to look like, you know, like Lilo and Stitch or Moana. So it can definitely, I think, weigh down on me or maybe on other light-skinned Hawaiians as well because we're like struggling to kind of both exist as a Hawaiian, but then also as a Hawaiian who is not perceived as Hawaiian by everybody else. So it can definitely be difficult to try and like, you know, not have that validation from others per se, but definitely get still recognized, I guess, by everyone else for who we are and what we stand for. Your segment in this program is about 20 minutes long. You talk about a few topics in that time, one of which is your dream for everyone to see Hawaii the way that you do, not just for its natural beauty, but for its cultural beauty as well. What's your experience been like with the way those outside of our islands view Hawaii? I think for me, it definitely came more to fruition of me seeing that things both a big turning point was the COVID-19 pandemic and then seeing the return of tourism and its influence come back to the islands, but also me leaving Hawaii as well and then going off to college on the continent or the mainland because I had to deal with a lot of people. I don't blame some people, like certain people or students for asking like questions, you know, like, oh, like, do you guys have electricity over there? Or like, you know, like the basic questions like that. Some of them maybe it's out of ignorance, but just a lot of students just haven't had exposure to Pacific Islanders and our culture like in general. So I always try to keep an open mind when I educate or explain to people, especially dealing with Hawaii's history as with the overthrow of the um, Hawaiian Kingdom as well, because that is very clearly something that is not taught in history books, not even in some places here in Hawaii. So for me, that definitely, I think, just opening up and trying to like explain to people and just trying to be that representation like out there for me was definitely, I think, one of like the main things I wanted to like get out there in my podcast. Also in in your piece in the program, you talk about giving back to your people in a way that you know best, which is through science. Can you talk about what you find so fascinating about chemistry and geology and science and how you plan to use what you learn to give back to your people? So I was definitely, I think, one of, like, the nerdy children. I, like, memorized, like, the periodic table in eighth grade. Like, that was fun for me. I know that's not something that, like, every, like, 14-year-old loves to do. But I fell in love with that. I thought it was, like, so cool just, like, as I grew older, too, and, like, getting into more science classes in middle and high school. I, like, love just knowing how, like, the world worked around us at this the smallest scale possible like in biology we learned about how our like bodies make up cells but atoms are the ones that make up those cells too so i wanted to just break it down to the most like minute level and i love figuring out and knowing how the world worked around us and how basically chemistry is like the basis of life and everything and the reason why we are here so i fell in love with that so i knew i wanted to major in that when i went off to college and then Once I got into my freshman year at Stanford, I started taking a couple like geology classes as well. And I love the application of chemistry to that. So because I like love figuring out how the world worked around us, I got to apply chemistry to that because a lot of geology deals with the study of learning about how the earth moves and our planet's place in the universe and the rest of the solar system. That connection was mind blowing to me. And Hawaii is such a unique place for a lot of geology studies as well, just because of our unique location and the bunches of different ecosystems we have on these islands. So for me, I knew I wanted to be able to apply what I learned and be able to take it back home because Hawaii is so special in both scientific and a scientific perspective per se, but also just in a cultural way for me as well. And obviously for a lot of other Hawaiians, I wanted to be that intersection between both Western methods of research, but indigenous research methodologies as well. So for me, I knew I wanted to be able to connect that and use Stanford's resources and money to be able to get the most of my education while I'm up there in California and then use what I learned to be able to bring it back and apply it in a way that will both benefit me and the rest of Hawaii as well. 
when it comes specifically to science, here, especially in recent years, there's been a lot of back and forth, sometimes people pitting science versus culture. I think it was most exemplified when it comes to the issue of TMT. I'm interested to know how you can balance your interest in science and your love of your culture. How can we do that as a community, as a people, to balance those two things? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely think it can be hard sometimes. But for me, like I know my like culture will always win over the side of science, per se. I'm very anti-TMT. I'm very like, you know, like very cool, I guess, per se, because I know that my kupuna, my ancestors were here before me, were here before these Western methods of research and things existed. And even Western research methodologies were sometimes based off of indigenous methodologies and things that our ancestors and native people had figured out first. So our kupuna were here before us and our keiki will be here after us. So I will always choose indigeneity per se over Western methods of doing so. And it definitely still can be hard because I, I know in Hawaii there's this very spoken rule of how you don't take rocks off of the islands. You don't take anything from Pele's home because this is her place and everything. And I remember this one instance of me going through the, I call it the rock room, but it's basically this like huge collection of all of like Stanford's rocks and minerals that they have in drawers. And I was going through them one time. I opened it up and I saw this collection of rocks that people had taken from Kilauea. I immediately shut that drawer. I was like, I am not going through this today. I'm not choosing to be cursed, I guess, in a way by Pele. Yeah, that was something that was, I guess, like really kind of heart-wrenching for me as well. That kind of, I guess, was a turning point for me of kind of the exploitation of Hawaii and of indigenous culture. And I thought about bringing those rocks home, back home without anybody knowing, but I just never got a chance to go back to that row, I guess, before I came home for the summer. But definitely for me, I'm always going to have to try and figure out that balance between Western science and native science, but the indigenous side will always win over for me. Are you hopeful that there is a way for us as a state to kind of find the balance between Western science and indigenous science in, in a way that preserves culture? I think if that is possible, then the state definitely needs to be prioritizing our Hawaiians and putting Hawaiians on the front line of making these decisions, which has also been one of the huge polarizing issues as well, that Hawaiians, we are out there, but we are not being heard and we are not getting to make the decisions that directly affect us. So I think in order for that conversation to even be put on the table, we need to see more representation of ourselves being in that conference room, making those decisions, because in the end, it is our land, it is our culture, and it is our people who are being directly affected by this, but we are the ones who are getting little to no say in any of it at all. You know, we've heard leaders and politicians talk about the Hawaii brain drain, basically how local students move away to go to college and end up living their adult lives on the continent or elsewhere when they could be coming back home to use their talent and skill set. You already have said that you intend to use your education and training in service of the Lahui. What are your thoughts on what the state can do or, or what we can do as a community to bring local students back or to give them the opportunities where they don't really have to leave to be able to get higher education? I think it's important for people who want to go away to college, definitely do it. I am grateful I left because it's given me like a wider perspective and like worldview per se of me getting to meet other people from other cultures and I've absolutely loved that experience but I knew I always wanted to come back home so I'm very in support of anybody who wants to leave to leave but also I'm very in support of anybody who wants to stay to stay because ultimately we know ourselves best and we know what we need but for those of us who are going away to college I've noticed it's become increasingly harder and harder for us just to be able to come back home because of things associated with like rising housing costs and living and minimum wage everything like that so it's definitely disheartening to see a lot of my friends and family leave but not just not have the resources in order to come back so i would say maybe the best things that should be put out there for us to be able to return back home is one definitely just resources you know things like scholarship support systems counselors anything that students will need off island in order to thrive and be able to come back home, definitely, I would say, obviously, money is a huge issue. So I'm so grateful for the scholarships that have been given to me to allow me to continue my educational journey. That's obviously a huge deciding factor for people going to college as well. And also just, and I'm talking from my experience as well, just 
being homesick, I think, has been another huge factor for me. So just having, like, you know, the support systems and maybe, like, cultural counselors and guidance, things like that, to help let us know that we are making the right decision about our educational journey. But And then just knowing that we'll have that support system or anybody that we need, like, standing behind us and helping us, coaching us, guiding us throughout that way will mean the world of a difference and will definitely encourage people, I think, to come back home once they realize all of these people are standing behind me. I can do that, too, and help other people. And that train will just continue on for the next generation. Thanks so much for your time, Camille. I really enjoyed talking to you. No worries. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Kailua native and Stanford College student Camille Lehulu-Slegel talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Slegel's story is featured in APM's new program, Standing in Two Worlds. APM produces other programming that airs here on HPR, including popular shows like Marketplace and The Splendid Table. Today in our Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the first rail line built in Hawaii. This particular train began operating in 1881, but it was not alone for long. In 1889, what would become Hawaii's largest railroad opened its doors. The Oahu Railway and Land Company laid tracks all the way from Kahuku to Wahewa via Honolulu. Maui's Pioneer Mill opened a short-haul line in 1890, and on the Big Island, the Hilo Railroad opened a 33-mile line in 1899 that ran along the scenic Hamakua Coast. But by the mid-1950s, most industrial railroads had been shuttered or converted to small tourist attractions replaced by trucking, which was cheaper and required less infrastructure. Hawaii's first ever rail line falls into that category. It was built on Kauai for the Kilauea Plantation, which now goes by the name Kauai Plantation Railway. Today, it's a tourist attraction offering a narrated tour on a a two-and-a-half-mile line that traverses the 105-acre plantation that is now home to groves of crops and livestock. And congrats to our backyard winner, Brendan from Kaimuki. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, for trivia, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. In HBO's industry, Myhala Harold's character enters the cutthroat world of finance. She said starting out in Hollywood isn't so different. As a black person, I understood it was my job to make myself undeniable. I need to come in with all the questions y'all think you're going to ask me answered. Mahala Harold on being her own champion. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You know, when we last talked with Kumahula Patrick Makuakane in our studios, he was preparing a project featuring the legend of Iaka. But the pandemic hit, and that got put on the back burner, although it may be released later this year. But the other project that Makuakane had in mind was Mahu, which was to be staged in 2020. Well, happy to report that it will debut in October at the San Francisco Palace of Fine Arts. Tickets for the show went on sale today. We talked to Patrick yesterday afternoon about what to expect. And if you know Patrick, you know he goes big or he goes home. This show called Mahu, actually, you know, it came to me because every year we receive funding for our home season, which is our show in October, and that's the main source of income for us. And so whatever show that I come up with has to be something that will, you know, be appealing to funders. That's sort of the life that I need, along with a lot of other artistic groups here in San Francisco. So I was trying to think of what topic, what could I do that would be interesting and challenging for me as an artist, as well as takes notice from funders and hopefully something that they will want to support. And at the time, as is now, you know, 
the topic of transgender issues was like zeitgeist of conversation. And I was thinking of, of the many talented uh, mahu or transgender people that we have in Hawaii who are my friends. And I, was, I thought, what if I did a show of transgendered artists who sang for us while we danced? And they're such extremely talented people. I think it would be an awesome show. And I think funders would really like the idea of seeing um, transgender people spotlighted. And the idea I came up with was not to take a political stance on it, but just to let people hear them sing and watch them dance because their artistry is so powerful. It just portrays their authenticity, their humanity. And I thought that that would be in and of itself enough to showcase these people as extraordinary individuals. What's the lineup like? Well, the lineup is Kumuhina, who is Hinalei Moana Wong Kalu, and many know her as Kumuhina after the self-titled award-winning documentary from 2014 that tells her story as a Native Hawaiian Mahu teacher and educator. And along with Kumuhina, we also have Kuwini. And Kuwini is a trio of Mahu falsetto singers that will knock you off your feet with their remarkable vocals and hairdos. And they're just incredibly witty, colorful, and has such vocal audacity and some of the most glorious harmonies you've ever heard in Hawaiian music. It's as if every song is a parade, right? Who doesn't love a parade? <laughs> and then there's Kamaka Iwa Kanaka Ole, who comes from that incredible, powerful, matrilineal line of cultural experts and hula people on the big island, the Kanaka Ole's. And she, Kamaka Iwa, she's a riveting performer whose music is just breathtakingly singular. I mean, I'd say that she, her vocal expression is like history tumbling into guttural honorifics, which seamlessly flow into sparkling contemporary edges. I really feel that she's an important Native Hawaiian artist today who's expressing herself and her individuality and her foundational traditions, and yet soaring with contemporary ease. So I, as an artist myself, love to work with someone like that, because I think we, we see artistry on the same plane in terms of how we can, I don't want to say move our traditions forward, but let them coexist with our contemporary ways of life to bring them together to find something meaningful and surprising. And she is definitely in that same space. So I'm thrilled to finally be working with her and all the other artists. And, you know, if you call your show Mahu, that means you better bring it. I'm sort of nervous because I, no, nah, I'm not nervous. I'm ready. I'm ready to bring it. I mean, we always do things that are kind of larger than life anyway. That's kind of my specialty. But now I'm, it's like everything is being reexamined from costuming to um, staging, um, lighting. I'm really trying to create something very special with this show. Well, you are showcasing this wonderful talent at a fabulous venue, Palace of Fine Arts. Yes. And, you know, the clip you sent me of the trailer, it started out with strings and I was putting myself you know in that venue that very classic venue Palace of Fine Arts so, so talk us through this one of the things that's most appealing for me as a native Hawaiian kumuhulo artist is, is when I blend music that is decidedly non-Hawaiian with things that are very traditional like that chant you're hearing by a famous chanter named Kuluwaimaka and a beautiful piece of music called The Nature of Daylight, which I just loved. You know, it's like, did the guy who was walking around with a chocolate bar accidentally stumble into the peanut butter jar? I'm not sure, but how do we know two things that are so disparate from one another when they come together create something that's more dimensional? So that's what I love to do. I love to sort of like tease my brain as to matching things which come from two different places and seeing if the effect of bringing them together has resonance. That piece definitely has one. I can't wait. And it's built around not only the idea of combining these two different pieces, but the chant that Maka is chanting is an homage to the goddess or the elemental of Hula, Laka. And so that element comes into it with dancers and with possibly the building of a shrine. That is such a exciting way to create something that honors our hula antiquities, our hula akua, or akua hula, I should say, so that we, as contemporary Hawaiians today, get to place a commemorative nod and thanks to those hula deities that came from long ago. Well, let's share some of that with our listeners.
chanted over, I added some drum beats, it's another famous chanter named Kaupena Wong, and I just added kind of modern twists to the beats, as well as to the sort of like repetitious statements that we find in a lot of music today, just being a little, a little silly and fun, but yet mindful of the beauty of this particular chant. I want to make a comment about the other chant that I don't think a lot of people will get, but something really awesome happens in the recitation of that chant. That is Kuluai Maka, and he is a prominent chanter from the time of Kalakaua. But he makes a mistake, and he laughs at himself. It's adorable. Every time I hear that, I smile to myself. And it's hard for me to imagine that chant being chanted correctly without that mistake and without him laughing. Oh, that nuance like there. Yeah, it's a nuance that just touches me every time I hear it. When people come to the show, what they're going to see is combination of collaboration of different musical styles, of costumes, of modern and contemporary, as well as traditional dancing expressions, chanting. I mean, I don't like linear. (laughs) I don't like to start from the tradition and then move through time to end up to contemporary times today. I love to mix them all up because I feel that's what my life is. It's not just about one being here and then running to the other side, the other being there. It's just I'm one big wheel that's collecting everything as I move throughout the day. And that's how I teach. And that's how I work with my dancers to create a show. All of it is up for grabs at any time. One doesn't have to be here. One doesn't have to be there. Why not just bring them all together? And now, of course, I also have a very special place in my heart for the many beautiful traditional dances that were given to me. And I keep them intact in their pristine state. And I love them. But there are also a huge collection of traditional elements that I love to mix and create different sounds with a more sort of modern influence. It never stops. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 40 years, and I'm always intrigued by the concept of this duality. Yeah, it's like a recipe, right? It's old-style yeah. recipe, and you right. just kind and of you know spice recipe. it up. <laughs> My dancers, many of them who have been with me for a very long time, they are trained hula dancers. That's what They're not trained in hip-hop or contemporary dance or ballet, they're hula people. So I learned a long time ago while I'm stylizing hula to create our modern pieces. There's no jumping, there's no turning, there's no jetés, because they don't do well at that. But what they know is hula. So the movements which are stylized come from a very hula foundational place. Because, yeah, we're not, we're not jazz dancers, we're not contemporary dancers, so they can't do certain things. And then I don't like that look of that contemporary piece to be too out of the vein of hula. I always appreciate some kind of connection. Of course I say that, but I'm sure some people would be like, what the hell was that? That wasn't hula at all. And I welcome all comments. Right. <laughs> but that's that's art, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we had a really wonderful collaboration with Kahula Nui, this amazing Hawaiian jazz band. I don't know if you're familiar with yes. the Yes. Well, so I have some dancers who are incredible Lindy Hop dancers. So for six months, we trained with Lindy Hop dancing. And so we kind of did this mishmash of hula and Lindy Hop to their music, which was a perfect fit. And it was awesome. And the dancers learned a lot. And I believe that whatever dance you're learning besides your hula, it will make you a better hula dancer. It stretches your muscles and your brain and pushes your boundaries so that when you come back to hula, it's like, wow, look at how fabulous my hula is now because I was stretching those muscles. So something that started when I was a dancer with Robert Casimero. You said there was a third clip? Yes, the third clip is Kamaka Eva Kanaka Ole, and she is our closing artist. And you just listen to Kamaka Eva chant, and you listen to the background, and you recognize that there's something innovative happening here, but yet very, very traditional and from that known place. And her guttural voice is just like the belly of the earth chanting out to the sun. That's what I love about her. People say that, oh, well, she's just chanting when she sings, but it's more than that. It's there's something like really that possesses her. 
she would say it's Pele, it's their family, Akua. And, but there's something in there that makes her, I think, an extraordinary talent and just so mindful of her contemporary place in this world and how to approach that place and how to get people to listen to her. And, and plus, she's mahu, so that makes it a little bit harder or maybe easier in some corners. And so she's exploring what's available for her to express herself as this mahu in 2022. <laughs> You can look for links to Mahu, the latest effort by Kumuhula Patrick Makuakane, on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. The show is set for October at the San Francisco Palace of Fine Arts. Well, that is it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to get the update on the state's efforts to trap COVID in our wastewater. Give us some feedback. Got questions about anything you've heard on our air? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.